So we took off and flew down that mountain. Four or five of us, I remember, we were having the fun, the air blowing past your ears, and you're worried about hitting a rock and flipping the bike or something. And then all of a sudden, after a, a number of minutes, we realized that the road that we were on was a dead end at the bottom of this deep valley. We looked around, we're like, well, we know we were supposed to head this way. We look back up the hill, what do we do? We start walking our bikes because we weren't riding them back up that thing. I forget how long it took us to get back up that mountain uh, slope, but we get to the top, and of course there's some other uh, the entourage. She goes, what did you guys go down there for? We knew we were supposed to turn right here. You go, like, thanks, why didn't you tell us that? And they would have said what? Well, why didn't you listen, or why didn't you slow down, right? If you were driving down a road at night, and uh, there was a bridge out ahead of you, you would expect what? Some road barriers that said, bridge out, right? And if there was a bridge that just recently went out, the person that may be coming from that way would tell you, hey, you can't go down that way, a bridge is out. You want somebody to tell you things. If you're standing in line in an amusement park, and you're in a long line, and you're waiting there an hour, and then all of a sudden you get up to the line, and I don't know, maybe it closes down, or in the Midwest we'd have lightning storms come in, and they'd close the rides down because somebody was watching the weather. You'd go, well, why didn't you tell me storms were coming in or I couldn't get on this ride? Maybe you're at the DMV, right? And you sit there for about an hour and a half, right? And then you get up and you don't have the right documents. I'm sorry. Well, why didn't somebody tell me I didn't have the right documents? You know, I was thinking with this whole Ebola thing, it's a little scary. I was actually talking to somebody who took a, a flight across the country this week and they picked up a cold by the person next to him. Wouldn't you want the person who had been working in Liberia and was on their way back and they had been working with Ebola people to tell you they did that before you sat down beside them, right? You want to know information that could detrimentally change the future of your life. I want you to know that what we're talking about in these weeks, whether you're here for the first time, you've been with us for a few weeks, this is detrimental to your life, either in a bad way or in a super fabulous, exciting way cool way. And that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom the scriptures teach about. Who some people use in a cuss word kind of way. That Jesus Christ who is known in our world is coming back physically to this planet and it's going to change everything. But you and I need to know that that's coming. And we need to radically realign our lives in that direction of which it goes. Now, <clears throat> today, you guys need to be really good students. Because I'm going to get your head spinning today. All right? Remember the diagram? This is a, I've changed up my diagrams a little bit today. But this is the diagram if you want to separate what we live in now called the present age from the age to come. There is a cataclysmic event, the second coming of Christ, the parousia of Christ, the coming of Christ, that's going to radically alter life as we know it from this present age to the age to come. That's the simple diagram. But it's going to get much more complicated for you folks today. And some of you are excited about that, and others are like, oh, no, don't get too, my head's spinning too much. My brain might hurt. Hang with me. This is important for you to know. I don't want you at the bottom of the hill without knowing which way you needed to turn. All right? 
We've been in Matthew 24 and the whole subject matter of left behind no more. Jesus is teaching on the end times and current events. Matthew 24:29. immediately after the distress of those days, Jesus is casting his, his uh, prophecy forward. Talking about the tribulation times. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Verse 30, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now you may see mourn. What's that mean? It's like, oh no, it's just that startling, oh my goodness, is this true, this cataclysmic event? And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect, those who are followers of him, from the four winds, from the ends of the heavens to the other. This passage you just read with your eyes are not nice words to just post out there on a billboard for the fun of it. These are the words of our Lord Jesus himself speaking to disciples, just like some of you are here this morning. And he is telling you this is going to happen. He is coming back. Now, here's my diagram. I changed it a little bit just to keep you awake. The reality is that... His articulation in Matthew 25, which is above that present age sign there, is his instructions to them upon their question saying, what will be the sign of your coming and to the end of the age? And so he starts to lay it out, right? First week we talked about some of the signs. There will be wars and rumors of wars, pestilence in various places. People will be, uh, uh, they'll turn against one another. They uh, will fall from the faith. That whole Matthew 24 passage that we've been in is descriptive of what happens between the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., which was after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. They, Jesus predicted that every stone would fall from the temple. It happened 70 A.D., but then he begins to articulate in Matthew 24 this present age all the way through to what's referred to as the Great Tribulation. Some people believe it's a a period of seven years. And that tribulation will occur before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that second coming we'll look at here in a second is referenced in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. But last week we referenced that there is a partial second coming in one sense that's believed by some people called the rapture. And that Jesus Christ will take his believers, those who are followers of him, out of the terrible tribulation time before he comes back, all right? And so we're going to look at that in a second. So you got all the way from creation on the left-hand side to the new heaven and the new earth described in Revelation 21 and 22. We are living in the present age, what's sometimes referred to as the church age in Scripture. If you read about it, it refers to all this time since Jesus was here as the last days, all right? The latter days sometimes are referring right to the very end. But there is a present age, a cataclysmic event, an age to come. And that age to come came back and entered into this world when Jesus Christ came the first time. He inaugurated the age to come. All right? So we've been down this journey a little bit. Hopefully that diagram doesn't overwhelm me too much with that. I want to look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13 again, which says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. With a loud command and the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I underline, we'll be caught up. That's the word uh, that we get the modern word rapture from. So it's believed that Jesus will appear in the heavenly realms. He will pull his church with him, those who are followers of him. And then the tribulation steps in. Then he will come back with that church. Revelation talks about him coming back on a, a white horse and that he is coming back to establish a new era of time. All right. So whether you depict this as the rapture or whether you depict this as the second coming in and of itself and you don't think there's a rapture before the second coming, it really doesn't matter. This event is going to happen. And Paul was instructing the Christians in Thessalonica about this because, one, they were concerned about those who had died before them because their belief was Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. We believe you're coming back. And they did not want their loved ones who had died to miss out. So he was instructing them what would happen with that. And there was also a little bit of a tendency with this church to just sort of sit around and do, well, what we sometimes do in our churches. I'm not just saying this church, all churches, it's conditioned to my life too. We just sit around and go, this is pretty cool. Jesus is coming back. He saved my life and I've got redemption. So I'm just going to sit around and do this. Twiddle my thumbs. Twiddle my thumbs and wait for the Lord to return. And Paul didn't like that. So he said, you need to know this. Get busy. Get about this. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we live with him forever. This is coming. And so he weaves in different parts of both First and Second Thessalonica, this instruction to those Christians in that city at that time in that area, saying, you know, be alert, cataclysmic event. Things are going to change, but be diligent about what God's called us to in this day. Now, this is where our diagram is going to get busy. Because I am going to add something, something that some of you may be familiar with, some of you may not be familiar with. I am going to add a thousand years to this diagram. The thousand years is called the millennium. The millennium is clearly articulated in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 20. The millennium, the word means a thousand. Some believe, people believe it's a literal thousand years. Other people believe it's symbolic of a thousand years. All right. But there is a literal millennium, a thousand year reign of Christ that's articulated in Scripture following that cataclysmic event into the age to come. That thousand year period will occur here on this earth. This thousand year period will have the earthly reign of Jesus Christ visible with all the world. Jesus Christ, when He came the first time, came to establish His reign on this earth, but it was a spiritual reign. And so I've noted that through the church age, the spiritual reign of Christ. But when Jesus Christ comes again, there will be an earthly reign of Christ on this physical earth. Now, this is going to sound maybe a little elementary to you. I want you to stand up right now. Will you do that for me? I want you to stand up. Like I said, elementary, but some of you a little doze in there. No. Do this. You're standing on concrete in Marietta, 
Southern California. Underneath that concrete is dirt. It's attached to what's called the earth. We live on a terrestrial ball that's floating in the midst of outer space. In fact, we're spinning right now. Can you feel it? No, you can't. That's where you're at. You are in Marietta, California, on a spinning terrestrial ball hung in the universe. And who created all of it? God. And God so chose to create human beings to reflect His likeness and to bring Him glory. So He stuck them on this globe. Sin came Brokenness came into this globe, and we see it all around us. Whether it was the war in Bosnia we just reviewed about from a couple years ago, or the conflict that's going on in the Middle East right now, or wherever else. This world is not healthy. This world needs a change. God is mindful that the sin that has caused brokenness in this world, through the hearts of mankind, and then through all creation, groans as in pains of childbirth, the scriptures say, He is going to redeem. And he is going to redeem it in the same way he started it when he brought his kingdom in, when God himself was born in the flesh of Jesus Christ into this world. He came and he put boots on the ground. He died after living a sinless life and challenging us how to live. He was raised from the dead. He appeared over a period of 40 days to different people in his heavenly glorified resurrected body. And then he ascended into the heavens. They were gawking. The angel said, why do you gawk? He's coming back in the same manner you saw him go. What's that mean? That means he's coming back with boots on the ground. Jesus Christ in the millennium kingdom is going to be reigning on this earth on the very ground that you're standing on. Check it out one more time. What do you think? You can be seated. You're in church. The pastor's supposed to say things like that because it's in the Bible. But do you really believe it? And do you live your life as if Jesus Christ is coming back to redeem and make all things right? There's great tribulation coming. It may not be coming in your future. It may be already in your life. And you have a hard time getting up every morning to face your tribulation. Jesus is near through His Spirit. When we worship, asking His glory to be here. I was thinking about that tomorrow when we're worshiping. I'm like, man, I'm going to be talking about God's glory coming on this earth. But God, we want Your glory now, here. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help us to live our lives knowing not only what's ahead, but to live our lives now in a radically different way because of what's ahead. The millennium is a thousand-year reign. It's believed that the Christians who are dead in Christ, rise to meet with the Lord up in the sky, that kind of thing, you know, that they will come back with Christ. In fact, some people that would uh, interpret the Thessalonian passage as not a part of the rapture are saying, you know, well, when you, you study the culture of that day, if there was a king that was coming into his providence or into a local community that he was in charge of, what the uh, local people would do is they'd go outside the walls of the city. They would welcome the king and usher the king into their city. And so that's what's in Paul's mind here when it says we will, the dead in Christ will be raised. Then those of us alive, we will go and meet the Lord in the sky and not do the U-turn and go back up into heaven to avoid the tribulation. Actually, in that concept, in that belief, is that those Christians who are dead and rise and the Christians who are alive, they are basically the entourage to bring Jesus in his glory at his second coming. 
And so whether you believe again, I believe in the rapture or not, don't believe in the rapture, that, that partial other coming of Jesus in there. Know this, that Jesus will come with individuals who have been worshipers of him throughout the ages. And they will like escort him in a grand, fabulous, trumpet-filled, visible event. And Satan, it's said in Scripture, and we won't go there and fall into the particulars that will be locked up and bound for a thousand years, it says. But the millennium, if you've ever heard that word, um, this is what it's referring to biblically, is the thousand-year period of reign after Jesus comes back. All right? We'll look at it in Revelations 20. It says this, I saw thrones on which were seated those who would be given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or the image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. It's referring to the Antichrist and there's all different kinds of interpretations. What's that's meaning? They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This thousand years, this millennium, is most forth, uh, is spoken most forthrightly in Revelation. But it's believed that the millennium concept is also scattered throughout prophecies of the Old Testament. And if you'll go with me on a journey there real quick, I'd like to point some of these out real quick. In Daniel 2, 44, it says this, In the times of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar interpreting a dream, and he didn't even know what the dream was, but he was revealed the dream was him. The dream, all right, was about this tall statue that had gold at the head. It had silver around the middle part. It was bronze here at the hip and the thighs, and then it was iron legs, and then the feet were iron and clay. And very disturbing dream that... Nebuchadnezzar had. And then there was a rock that there was there was a rock that was hewn out of the mountain and it came and it crushed the feet of this image with the iron and the clay. And it was scary. It crushed the feet, the whole the whole um statue just disseminated into dust and the wind blew it away. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, uh, what's this mean? Uh, who, who even knows what my dream was? Daniel steps forward. God revealed to him. He said, this is what the dream is. And the dream represented different eras of time historically. If you want to dive in and study about it, it's pretty cool how really clear and accurate it was. Going from the gold all right, to the silver, to the bronze, to the iron, and then to the clay feet. And then the rock that was hewn out of the mountain is the kingdom of God of the Messiah who was to come. And that's where he says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Question, have we experienced that kingdom on this earth yet? No. 
Nations rise against nations, kingdom against kingdom, people battling one another. Certain sects, Shiites battling Sunnis. I mean, all kinds of ongoing warfare. There's never been a kingdom that will endure forever. But the millennium will bring the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 2.4 says this, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. I'm sure in a room such as this, there's individuals who have been impacted by war, whether you were in war, whether you had relatives in war, and they carry the remnants and the scars from that, or maybe even lost loved ones. War is a horrendous thing. There's more wars in the 20th century than all the other centuries combined. It only keeps getting worse. But there's coming a day when they will train for war no more. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks because that's not needed anymore. Isaiah then also says in Isaiah 24:23, the moon will be abashed the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign from Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. When Jesus came the first time, did that happen in Isaiah 24, 23? No. He established his reign in the hearts and lives of people and defeated Satan. But he did not establish a glorious reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. All right? And then Zechariah 14.9. Zechariah has tons of prophetic scripture related to the end times. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. I long for that day. Not in an escapist kind of way. But because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, which means the spirit of Jesus Christ dwells within you, then your heart should long for that because Jesus Christ longs for that. He longs to make all things right. He longs to wipe every tear from every eye and to establish his reign. Why does he wait? Why does he delay? I don't know. None of us know. But he's working out his sovereign purpose, desiring that all would be saved, that everyone would be a part of that kingdom. Everyone in this room today, Jesus desires for you to be in the millennia and and to live with his reign. But the only people that will see that are those who are believers and followers in him. And that's a prime question. That's before every one of us. So those are some passages that articulate the millennium in the Old Testament as well as the Revelation 20. Revelation 21 then goes and it starts to establish what's even past the millennium. What it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them forever. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Praise God. For the old order of things, the present life passes away, the present age, for, that has passed away and the age to come is at hand. So, let's go back to our diagram. 
The new heaven and a new earth is seen in this particular understanding of Scripture as after the millennium. The millennium is a thousand-year reign here on earth. Jesus Christ boots on the ground with the believers who are in him. People will still be born. People will still die. In fact, scriptures say that the breadth of life will be expanding up to 100-some years kind of thing. That You know, the, the traditional lifespan, or not a traditional lifespan, but a lifespan that have been known before. There will be harmony and beauty in the millennium. Satan will have been bound. It says then at the end of that millennium there was one last release to try to uh, bring destruction and that is going to be then a final death with a final resurrection to judgment in Revelations 20, verses 11 through 15. I've noted there. This diagram has been very helpful for me throughout all my years as a believer because it gives me context for where I'm at and what's going on. I believe one of the reasons we need to understand things about the end times and Christ's coming is because we easily live our lives in isolated moments, isolated weeks. The highs and lows from the weeks determine how we feel. How was your week? It was a crummy week. Why was it crummy? Well, this happened at work. Or I was sick, right? We have a very myopic context for how we live life. This helps frame up a much bigger worldview for me to live in. I understand that in this world there will be wars and tribulations and pestilence and famine. So when I read the news, I say that's typical for this time, the church age. Oh, Lord Jesus, is it ever going to change? Yes, it's going to change. Lord, do you have a purpose for me? Yes, I have a purpose for me. I want you to sort of be part of my entourage. You know, I, uh, you know, it's interesting, the uh, scripture that's um, mentioned there in Revelations 20. You know, we have uh, a lot of times in worship, and rightfully so, it's like when we get to heaven, right, or when we're in the millennial reign, when we're in the age to come, <laughs> we're going to worship all the time. For some of us, like, woo, that's good, you know, Hillsong conference, uh, concert this week, some of you went to, that kind of, great, you know. But then there's others, those of us go, right, really? I have to be in a worship service the whole time? Scripture doesn't necessarily say that we worship the whole time. What it says is that we reign with Christ. We reign with Christ. Scripture says that we are co-heirs with Christ. You like to horsepower up and make things happen at work, in your life. You like to build things. You like to envision things. Maybe you're a mother and you like to raise and nurture a godly family. All that kind of energy you get to use in the millennium and in the new heaven and the new earth because your destiny is to do that which God created you for. All right. When he created Adam and Eve, he said, what? Rule, subdue and have dominion over the earth. You were created to make things happen. So we reign with Christ as redeemed people and we will be above even the angels and the seraphim. It says they're not redeemed. We're redeemed humanity. And so we reign with Christ in this era to come. And that, I think, is a beautiful thing. Now, you need to know this just to. Do a little bit of a tangent in a um, cul-de-sac kind of way. I will just go spin around and come back out. Okay. Not everybody believes that the millennium is a physical boots on the ground reign of Jesus Christ. It sort of goes back to 400 A.D. The early church fathers believed in a what's called a premillennial kind of reign that, that Jesus Christ is coming back pre the millennium to establish his physical reign for a thousand years. But then there was another really important church father kind of guy by the name of St. Augustine. And he wrote a book called The City of God. And in that book, he said that all the kingdom language in the Old Testament referencing to the Jews was now transferred to the church. 
And so wherever you read anything about the Jewish people, the Israelites, it's now not really meaning them anymore because, well, whether they didn't live up to what they should have lived up to when Jesus came or God's just plan has changed, but that the kingdom language is for the church. It's not for the Jewish people. So things started to shift, including this concept of the millennium. And the term amillennialism is a term that a lot of people would believe in today. In fact, some of you here may be amillennialists. What's that mean? The word ah means not or no millennium. It doesn't mean that there's not a reign of Christ going on or he's not coming back again. What it means is that you do not believe in a physical reign of Jesus for a literal thousand year type of period, boots on the ground after his coming. But that the millennium, which is a spiritualization of God's reign, is actually going on right now with the church. So the millennium is happening with God ruling on the world through his church. And so over the course of time, especially after Augustine and people didn't read a lot, there wasn't the printing press, that kind of thing. It was hush, hush. You do not push back against that kind of thinking. All right. We could dive in there a lot more. But understand this. Not everybody believes in a literal millennium or what I refer to as a premillennial view. They would believe more in an amillennial view. Okay. They're your brothers and sisters in the faith. If you're an amillennialist this morning, you're my brother and sister in the faith. And I tell you what, let's have at it. Let's dig into Scripture and work with it. What happens a lot of times, though, is we don't like to do the study of the Word. And it takes a lot of work to try to work with the the prophetic stuff. And what happens with many things of Scripture, we say, well, that's a symbolic. A thousand years is symbolic of a perfect reign. All right? When Scripture says that Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand, or God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, does that mean a thousand hills? No, it means he owns them all, right? But there is always the need to build the context for when things are stated. The word the thousand year term is used six times in Revelation, all right? You go back and climb into the Old Testament like we did, there's references to this reign, this physical reign, war no more kind of idea. And we need to let the context explain the scripture. And I came across this saying recently. I, I sort of like it. It says, I'm not going to mess it up here now. Um, the, I better read it. If I don't read it, I'm going to mess it up. And then I'll really feel sheepish about it. The rule of interpretation, not just for in time stuff, for all the scriptures, is this. If the plain sense makes sense, then don't look for any other sense or you'll make it into nonsense. <laughs> if the plain sense makes sense, then don't try to make any other sense or you'll make it into nonsense. Take the scripture literally. There are symbolic, symbolic kinds of things. But then we go from there to try to understand what's the reality that's behind that symbolism. If we said to you today, the White House um, has decided to send the president um, to the Middle East. We go, the White House? We mean the government. That administration decided to send the president. But if I said, I went, I'm going to go to the White House next month, we know the difference, right? So sometimes there are symbolism things, sometimes not. In fact, I'll tell you one real funny thing like this. Last, we're, we're having our little dinner last night, and I'm sitting with my two, two youngest ones. And, um, and I told you last week that my daughter said, uh, you know, how's your speech going, Dad? And I said, oh, thank you very much, honey. My speech going fairly good. And I was talk, asking if she believed that Jesus Christ was coming back. And she said, 
Well, yeah, he's coming back on a white horse. And it says that in Revelation 19. He's coming back on a white horse. I said, that's very good. I found out, actually, it was my wife who was teaching her that more than uh, anything else. And so uh, being backed up and reinforced by her own children's ministry. So I'm there with my 10-year-old, Grace, and my 15-year-old, got to love him to death, Down Center boy, Levi. And um, (laughs) as a matter of fact, this whole white horse thing came up again. And I said, wow, that's hard. Do you think he would literally come out of the heavens on a white horse to establish a, a new kingdom and a new reign? He'd be like a new president for the whole world. And it was like, well, yeah, Dad. And then Levi says this. He says, well, Dad, he came on a donkey, didn't he? <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, man, I've got a lot to learn. You're right, because you think about this. Think about the prophecies of the Old Testament, because it says that the Messiah would come on a donkey. It does. And Jesus specifically fulfilled that prophecy when he said, go get the donkey and bring it out to me. If you were in the Old Testament before anything you know about Jesus today, do you think you would sit around and scratch your head? Well, is it sort of symbolic? You know, is it symbolic that... That, uh, that he would come on a donkey? or uh, You're not even thinking that it's God himself that's come out of the heavens from the, the universe and made himself into uh, human likeness, and then he's going to put himself on a filthy, stinky donkey and ride humbly into uh, the main uh, jurisdiction of Jerusalem and claim that, that he was a king. You know, you're nuts. And sometimes I look at our diagram and the things that I study, I believe, I go, that, that's just nuts. Wait, Dad, he came on a donkey. Why couldn't he come on a white horse out of the sky? Get with it. Check your apprehension. Sometimes, and if you're an amillennialist this morning, please give me grace. Sometimes I believe amillennialists just have a hard time believing, literally, the incredible, fantastic way that God's going to bring his reign back through Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus, he went, he went before Pilate. Big government, right? Pilate, Jesus, place called the Praetorium. Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, hey, so are you a king? Because that's what everybody kept saying. He was a king, right? <laughs> Jesus, he looks at Pilate, this government official, and he goes, uh, are you asking this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? I just think that's a classic line. And Pilate goes, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered, me up, delivered you up to me. Now, what have you done? And then Jesus comes back and he answers this way. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I would not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate goes, so you are a king. And Jesus says this. You say rightly that I'm a king. For this I have come into the world and for this I have been born. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate says what? What is truth? Friends, this is truth. Jesus is king of kings and the Lord of lords. When he comes back on that white horse, it says that will be the banner across him. And when he comes back, he will establish an earthly reign. 
This spiritual reign that he has now is tugging at our hearts. Some of you in this room, are you following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? It's a physical, earthly reign. One more addition then to this diagram, and then I promise you I'm not adding this diagram anymore, even in the weeks ahead. All right? Because you're, you may be spinning. It said in Revelation 20:11, this whole thing of I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. The earth and the sky fled from its presence and there was no more place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of the fire where the Antichrist was thrown as well and the devil himself. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life, you need to have your name written in. Otherwise, this is the description of your destiny. This, my friends, is a sobering and sombering thought. And it should activate us in our daily life to love our friends and our neighbors and our family members to Christ. Jesus is coming. He knows who's in, who's out. He doesn't even need a book or a database that's real time. He knows. It comes down to have you tipped your heart towards being a follower and a believer of Christ or do you sit in indifference to Christ. It may not be a rebellious indifference. It just may be, oh, he's there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of a Christian. I go to church or I believe in a God. No. Jesus was very clear that you needed to be a follower of him, to repent of your sin, invite him to come into your life, for him to lead your life. Why would you want to be in a kingdom with the earthly reign of Christ if you did not want his reign in your heart today? Being cast into the final death is not something God does. It's something we do when we choose not to want to follow his reign. You will not have a perfect reign on this earth unless everybody, not forced into alliance, but has chosen to align themselves underneath the king. And that's the beauty of the church age that we're in. And the reason Jesus even articulated the urgency But from this passage, this is referring to a final death. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Paul sort of sums this whole diagram up to me in this um, section here. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's defending the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead the first time because people didn't believe it. You've heard me say it before. There were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, and I think of the Sadducees always as the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. And so... He was debating this with people around him. Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. And he says, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as at an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then he lays out a three-tier stages of resurrection. Next verse. But each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, 
Then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now you take that one, two, and three and let me impose it upon the diagram. The first resurrection, the first fruits, was the life of Jesus Christ being raised out of the tomb. That was first fruits. It's our hope. There is coming a resurrection of all believers someday. I have 1 Thessalonians 4.13 there, but that's referenced in that Corinthian passage there as then when He comes, those who belong to Him. So when He comes, those who belong to Him, they're raised physically. And then the third is the final resurrection and the, the final death and judgment, the great white throne judgment it's referred to, And that's at the end of the millennium. As it says, then the end will come ultimately when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Now, this multiple-tier resurrection thing, I believe, gives context to the larger present age to age to come vision. And we need to understand that God has some type of plan that he is going to roll out as surely as he rolled out his plan with Christ coming the first time. We... I think, benefit by studying it, learning it, letting it soak into our very essence because it should mobilize us with hope. It should mobilize us with mission. It should mobilize us with intimacy with Christ because we're going to be with him forever. All right? So we have this diagram up there not to get into the intricacies of it and to the fascination of it all, but to give you a worldview by which you can live your life and serve the kingdom of God that is and is to come. All right? So I want you to grab a hold of this. Don't feel like you need to write that down. I'm thinking maybe I can just print it up and hand it out. But this diagram is the context, I believe, for understanding the end times. And when Jesus spoke in Matthew 24, he's referring to that particular period between the fall of Jerusalem and the second coming. And we live in that church age, and we need to be about the kingdom's business. So with that, I take you back to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaking in light of some vision of the future of his coming says this. Verse 36, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was, we looked at this last week, in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Verse 42. Words of Jesus himself. The one you will meet someday who is here through his spirit this hour. Jesus himself says this, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. 
What happens in this passage now is Jesus moves away from articulating any chronology or events. And he begins exhorting the disciples who are there with him asking this question as surely as he would exhort us. And he exhorts us to keep watch and be ready. Then he moves into three parables, actually four if you want to count that thief thing we just read, but there's these three parables that he unloads on them. The parable of the household servant and the master in Matthew 24:45 through 51, the parable of the ten virgins and the bridegroom in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, and then the parable of the talents and the servant in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. I'm going to end there today. Part of me wanted to jump in to that first parable. We will pick up that parable next week. But I feel impressed of the Spirit to say this. There's going to come points out of each of these three parables for how we keep watch, how we keep ready. But the critical issue is are you ready for Him to come back? as your king. Will you pray with me? Lord, I believe in this room that there are some people maybe on a fence concerning their love for you and desire to follow you. Maybe in this room there are some people on the fence of just indifference. Maybe apathy. Lord, If your spirit is speaking to an individual this morning, I pray that you would just hug them and give them your love and let them know that the work you did on the cross was for them. Your death, your resurrection, your promise of soon return was because you loved them. And there is no greater destiny, even if their whole world's falling apart right now, than to be known as a child of yours and a co-heir in the kingdom to reign with you. Jesus, affirm them and to love them. And if you're one of those individuals this morning who is double-minded or uncertain as if your name would be written in the book of life, if you would be raised as a believer in Christ to reign with Him, if there is uncertainty, you can know for sure this morning that you're a child of His. I just ask you to simply repeat a prayer after me that says this. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I don't understand it all. But I know that there is brokenness in my life. There's been sin in my life. And I need a new beginning. So I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would forgive me of my sin. You would come into my life as my Savior and as my Lord and King. And though I can't see you, I will choose to the best of my ability from this day forward to live and serve you. So Jesus, I surrender. Come into my life. I love you. I'm going to sing a worship song. I just invite you to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who's here. I encourage you to Let all the trappings of maybe a crappy week or a crappy year, for all you know, be cast aside.
and find yourself in His presence. He loves us. He's redeemed us for a grand, incredible calling, not only in the millennium, but in the ages to come. We should be enjoying that, at least in part, in these days, even though they are broken. So worship Him. The ushers will come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings. But these are His moments with you.